All right, friends. So, um, we're in the final week of a, a series of uh, conversations helping us get back to uh, what a Jesus-centered foundation looks like. All right? And so we're talking about rediscovery because even though the, the five markers that we're talking about that mark our faith as really uh, centered on Jesus and, and very unique in, and radical in some ways are actually just a rediscovery of <laughs> the original story of the message that uh, the early church understood and that, that if you boil down everything that we kind of clutter our faith with, you get to some of these core elements that make us look truly different and truly beautiful in, in the world. So we've, uh, we've done a few things uh, over the last few weeks. One of them is we talked about a, a bunch of weeks ago a different way to read the scriptures, right? God always looks like Jesus, which is our foundational understanding of all reality, and therefore scriptures read through that lens of Jesus. We talked about how the gospel is not just about me alone, uh, but actually it's this hopeful story that includes a full community that we're going to get into today again uh, on, a, on a different level. But we are called to be a witness to what the kingdom of God looks like. Two weeks ago, we talked about a radical relationship with power, where instead of uh, Jesus people understanding power as something that you hold over another, instead of viewing influence as uh, we just have to align with wherever the power structures are of our world and using force to get what we want, instead... The Jesus way flips power on its head, and power looks like suffering love. And then last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit, and we just cleared that up entirely. <laughs> so, so um, we're set. Now, we talked about how, how an active faith requires that we are in touch with not just the way of Jesus, but the active presence of the Spirit of God walking with us, nudging us, inspiring us. And, uh, and caring for us. So we talked about how all of those are, are important. This week, we get to talk about disagreement. If you can't see that because it's so low, um, we're talking about how one of the markers of a faith that is centered on Jesus is a new approach to disagreement, where the church is defined by our shared center and not the lines we draw. The church is defined by our shared center and not the lines we draw. And that is the, the goal of walking away from this morning. A little bit of a different type of morning that we're going to do for the next couple of minutes. Um, but, uh, but we're going to start with the first part of that phrase. And then in just a little bit, I'm going to invite Lori up. And she's going to have a conversation with me in these chairs here. Uh, but, uh, but one of the biggest ways that a Jesus-centered mindset or a shared center mindset changes us, is it changes how we understand and how we do things in community, particularly when it's hard. But let's start with the, the first part. Let's start, let's start with the center. Um, what happens when, uh, when you lose your center of gravity? Yeah, you fall over, right? You lose your balance, right? One of the interesting things is like, because I like to do trail running when I'm really, really serious about my, my training and stuff, there's like a balance ball that you balance on, and then the next step is to close your eyes, so you can't, you, you can't focus on anything, and you're supposed to find a center, and without that focus, it's really, really, really hard. So you, it's hard enough to balance, but then when, when you can't even focus on something, um, and you lose your center of gravity, you go all over the place. Being centered is, um, is a phrase that's kicked around a lot, because we are super distracted people, right? Like, this is, just, this is just the reality of life. We are very distracted. In fact, 
me even saying that phrase, some of you might have just kind of got caught up and focused again because you were thinking about something else. This is, this is human. This is normal. You don't need to feel guilty about that. But, but we are a distracted people. And so to be centered on anything takes a lot of work. So we have things that we do within the church and we have practices of centering out in the world. Mindfulness is trying to center yourself so that all these thoughts aren't all over the place. There's all sorts of things that happen. Um, and, and often it's all of these weird periphery things that end up taking, if you, don't not- if you haven't noticed, it's periphery things that end up taking most of our mental energy. Not the, most, not the things that we would say are the key most important things in our life. So if you boil down what are your thoughts on in a typical day, and you break it down into a pie graph of percentages, how much would you say that these things that I spent thinking about and dwelling on were truly like the essence of what life should be all about and what my deepest values are? Or is it like, you know, what time do I need to start making dinner? And, and you know, uh, which, which task needs to get done? And did I winterize, you know, the faucet outside? Or, or um, did you see that speech by that candidate? Oh my goodness. Like, you know, whatever the case might be, right? There's all these things that end up taking our time and energy. And so, so the calling to have a center is a calling to be able to, to be focused on something enough to know what you're about so that you don't lose um, your, your balance, essentially. Uh, and, uh, and often, if we aren't balanced, it will define how our attitude ends up being toward other people especially when something throws us off. Um, it's super hard to be consistent if our lives aren't grounded um, and if we're walking around off-centered. There's this funny image that helps me with that. Uh, I play, or at least I used to play, a lot of disc golf. I don't know if, yeah, we have some other disc golfers here. So anyways, um, for, for a lot of years, this was like my primary way of, of just living and being. Um, every weekend, I would play in tournaments and all kinds of stuff. So this is a golf disc. And golf discs are designed uh, based on symmetry a ton. Some of them have wider frames or wider um, edges. And some of them have thinner edges. And uh, some of them are sharper. Um, yeah, so there's, there's all sorts of different, different styles. But obviously when you throw it and it spins really, really fast, it keeps its gravity and its center of gravity. And that's what makes it fly well. Well, uh, years ago, there was this other disc that came out that, um, that the Araby... Um, the guys that make the, the really long flying discs, they came out with this thing called the Epic. All right? The Epic is really interesting because they tried something new. Instead of having a, a, a thin rim or a wide rim, they had both. Okay? And so what they did was they decided that there are certain benefits for have, helping a disc fly far that comes with a wide rim, and, but, but it's certain benefits of having a grip on a narrower rim. So they decided to essentially take the center of the disc and just put it off. A little bit. Does this make you see what I'm doing here? You see the difference, right? See the difference? Okay. So here we have a center that is actually off-center, and and uh, what ended up happening was uh, it it kind of got a cult following because there were times where these things could really really react. But uh, on the whole, the one problem is that this disc became known as the single most unpredict- unpredictable disc on the planet that has ever been created. Um, there were great moments, but depending on your grip or the wind or how broken in the disc is, uh, it could go anywhere. So, so if you look it up online, you can look up reviews for, for various discs and what people think. And here are, the, here are the reviews from discgolfreview.com. The Epic leaves my hand like a rocket, but it's usually unpredictable. 
I do like the grip and the plastic, but overall, it's completely out of control. I had one of my longest throws ever with this disc, easily getting 60 feet past my furthest, and yet 75% of the time the disc will be completely random. Usually it'll have this dive left nonsense many others have reported. Another day, it goes right without coming back. A lot of the time, when it has a nice S turn, it's like God was smiting the disc from the sky in the last 10 feet, sharp right. So bizarre. This disc goes pretty far and in a hurry, but during its flight, I can't tell where it's going. I can throw a cinder block further than this disc. I use it when I have to throw through a thicket or over a pond, secretly hoping that someday I won't be able to find it again. So our, our center is important, and, and over and over again, what we see is if our center is off, if we become off-centered, then we lose the ability to be consistent. Simple as that. To be consistent in our relationships, to be consistent in how we respond to stresses, all of these things. And so, so, so we just need to understand that from a completely human perspective, being well-grounded on a central purpose and a central identity is a healthy, good way to be like human, okay? But within the early church, the understanding was that the only way that they could move forward with one another and with their mission was if they were truly centered and if their centering was on Jesus, all right? And so, so we see this emphasized in nearly every single letter, specifically in the New Testament, the importance of these young communities getting back to Jesus at their center to keep the main thing the main thing. And like I said, it was for two reasons. Number one, so they could get along. And number two, so that the mission could actually move forward without getting distracted. So we hear uh, this kind of constant encouragements over and over again about having Jesus at the center and how it affects the, the rest of our lives in a consistent way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, Paul writes in Philippians. And then in, Col- in Colossians, the reminder that, listen, Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. And by the way, he is the head. He's supposed to be the head, the center, <laughs> at least the, the, the thinking center of the body. He's in charge. Everything should flow out of the leadership of Jesus, the church. And let us run the race with perseverance, the writers of Hebrews writes, uh, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So in order to continue the path and to do it well, and we think about this stuff so individually, like individualistic, right? Like I want to run well with my eyes on Jesus, so that means like I'm not like screwing up and, and sinning and doing bad things. Sure, But part of this keeping our eyes on Jesus is so that we can do the Jesus journey with other people well. So it's all, have a good show, hon. So it's all all about this, this continued path with a center that then gets expressed in healthy relationships when it's being done right. And we know the damage that can happen when the center shifts. It can often be really subtle. So one situation like throws us if it's the type of situation that just happens to be your hot button, right? So here's what we do. Here's what we do. We decide, yes, us Christians, and if you've been around long, you've seen us write the centered set imagery over and over again. But what we're going to be is, is we're going to be centered on Jesus, right? But also, I'm writing the word issue, okay? But also we have these little issues, okay? 
And without realizing it, what we end up doing is we keep Jesus at the center, but we just put like this in there, like just a little bit for our common ground. So sure, we can keep Jesus at the center uh, unless, unless you hit on this. And then that, that's where my center is, and I lose my consistency. I can love you well unless it happens to be this one. And we all have different things. We all have different issues that threaten to make us inconsistent in our relationships with other people, depending on your past, depending on your, your trauma, your frustration, your family of origin, your passions. And, and so we need to be really careful that when we talk about being centered on Jesus and that, that the way forward in relationships is to have a shared center, that we don't quickly decide that we're going to add so many things to the center that all of a sudden almost everybody else can't be with us in it. And this is, this is the polarization journey that we're in right now. And we're going to talk about that more in, in just a minute. But if someone hits the, the nerve of kind of our new centers, then we lose the ability to be consistent. And just look, just think about this thing spinning. It's all over the place. Okay? And so, so this off-centeredness, it can be subtle, um, but it often looks like Jesus plus something else. And so it makes it very easy for me to decide that within the body of Christ, you and I were not together. You're on the outside. And this is particularly a problem because there's so much at stake for the church. Yes, we are going to disagree. Oh my goodness. Plenty. But when we have decided over and over that the way that we disagree is going to look and the attitudes that we have toward those that we disagree with is going to look the exact same as the rest of the world around us, then the rest of the world around us looks at us and says, nothing special about that. And you live with constant anxiety. Those are the two things that end up happening. And so... So when Paul writes to the, these letters to the early church, he's, he's reminding them over and over again what's at stake. Everything extends from, from this center. Um, and learning a different way to see others and to disagree with others is going to be crucial to how this center plays out. All right. Um, we can't say Jesus. Oh, oh, oh. And then the next thing. Let's, let's, just, let's just shift because I want to get to this conversation. We can't say then that Jesus is the center without actually defining what that means. Just a little bit more. Because it's easy to say Jesus is the center. Every church in the world would say Jesus is the center. And I want to I wanna be able to at least relate to that and say, great, I do see you as brothers and sisters. But like, what's it actually mean? And so uh, this is very simple, but Jesus helps us see that. Um, we get no clearer message than when he's in the upper room with his disciples in John 13. And, and this is, uh, he's sharing the Passover meal. He, this is the, the same time that he washes his disciples' feet and shows them the power of self-giving love. And, and within that context, here's what he says to his disciples. He says, a new command I give you, really weird language, because this has been out there swirling about the whole time. So it's like Jesus is saying, I mean, you've heard this theme, but I'm going to make it absolutely clear. So I'm going to call it a new command. Jesus doesn't use the word command very often at all. Okay, but he's speaking with absolute authority in these moments, knowing he's about to be removed from his disciples in the physical form forever, really. But, but he's, he's saying, I'm not going to talk in pictures or whatever anymore. And he says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And he says this, which is fascinating. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's each other language. He doesn't say if you love the whole world. Notice that. We're clearly called to love the world. But he says that the witness of how people will know if you're my disciples is how do you handle each other. All right, so this is a big deal. And it's something that we can be radically different in the world. So when our disagreements um, or our hurts come along, we have to learn new ways to work through them in love. Uh, This is hard, but it's possible. So we're going to take time to lean into that with a really practical conversation uh, between Lori and I. And we're going to ask the question of of what does happen when there are disagreements that feel like an impasse or where there's harm or offense. What are some of the Jesus ways forward? Lori, let me get you a uh, microphone here. We'll be on, on three. Thanks, Adam. And so we're going to ask these questions together and, uh, and have a little bit of a conversation. And the reason that, um, that, I'm, that I want you, yeah, this is great. The reason that I want you to, uh, to listen in is because Lori has a whole lot of background with what uh, is, is now called restorative practices or restorative justice. And she has studied it, she has led it, um, and she has taught it. And more importantly than any of that, she's practiced it. Let me get this out of the way so that... You all can not have something right in your face. So, Lori, uh, let's, let's just talk for a little bit, um, particularly uh, about, like, what are restorative practices, okay. both, both conceptually and, and practically. Okay. All right, conceptually, let's talk about that. <clears throat> so, um, if we look at, if we look that God is, always looks like Jesus. Right, yeah. And we look at it that way, we see that when harm is done between God and people, God offers a way to restore that relationship. Hmm. Okay? Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't um, respond by sending us to eternal, you know, punishment. He responded instead by offering his son to create a way to restore that relationship back to wholeness. That is our ultimate model, right, of why we want to restore our relationships back. Hmm. Restorative justice, then, is a structured and compassionate um, and thoughtful structure of how to actually do it in a practical way. Um, It gives us, it centers the needs of individuals or groups that are impacted when a, when a person has um, endured harm or when a person has caused harm. And, um, but also, it's not just the person who created the harm or the person who received the harm. It's also everyone else that is impacted by that harm because we know that, that it's not just two people, right? It's always the other people, too, have been impacted by it, family members and, and stuff like that. So the restorative justice is a structure in order to return to everyone back to wholeness. Hmm. Okay, so, so within restorative justice, can you tell us more like about, like, so, so the goal that it accomplishes, right? The goal that it accomplishes is not just, not just getting along, but wholeness for everybody. Right. That doesn't always have to include agreement in the midst of a disagreement, yeah? Or even reconciliation. Or forgiveness. Mm. Okay. Okay. Um, Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the points (laughs) 
of, of always of restorative justice. Um, so, um, but the wholeness of, of, the, of, the, of the individuals is the point. So depending on what the, um, what the thing is, sometimes reconciliation and forgiveness are not appropriate. So we're talking about in, in there, which, which is not our ultimate point today, right. but in there you're talking about issues that are related to abuse um, right. and, um, and violence, violence mm -hmm. power dynamics, mm -hmm. where, where the right. goal is to make sure that everybody is whole and safe, not to force right. anything that would be re-traumatizing. Right. Okay, so. yeah. So we wanted to establish that off the bat before we talk about kind of the more practical levels of just like normal disagreements that happen in day-to-day so, -day life yeah, more than the biggest stuff. The biggest stuff is not where we're really heading today. Right. Yeah. So what I'm talking about is our everyday um, disagreements that we might have with our family members, with our coworkers, with our spouses or partners, yeah. um, the ones that we have every day, okay? The, the things that, that possibly bother us and impact our relationships on a daily basis. Okay. okay. And so how do we, what do we normally do when, when conflict happens? Okay. What are the natural responses? So the natural responses, I know that you guys can all relate to this. We think of it in one or two ways. One, we'll take an authoritarian approach, okay? We're going to establish blame. We're going to um, think about what is the appropriate punishment for this person. <laughs> And um, how can they um, pay back either the person or, the, or, uh, the, or society for what they have done? So that's mm -hmm. our number one approach. And that's kind of where our justice system usually lands in that kind of authoritative. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about um, in schools, we thought misbehavior in schools, we want to think about, you know, what, what behavior is happening and how can we give this, this child the appropriate punishment. And then in families, we think about the same thing. You know, yeah. like what's the logical consequence of the thing that you just did so that we can um, establish your amount of blame. Okay. So yeah. that's their first response, and that's a, a common response. The other way that a lot of times we deal with it is in a passive way, right? We don't want to talk about it anymore. Maybe we just don't see that person anymore. Maybe we don't bring that subject up anymore. Maybe we don't attend that church anymore. Um, so guns blazing or avoidance yeah yeah so sometimes we either want to put the person in their proper place or if mm. we want to be really nice about it we could just be <laughs> passive and forget about it forever. but that doesn't make wholeness right because then all of a sudden when you see that person you feel like there's not there's not necessarily peace I'm just gonna right. it, it can just make make everything almost worse okay and, so and all of a sudden before you realize that there's no relationship there's, there anymore right no yeah. relationship at yeah. all so humans we live in this cycle of Hurt, pain, bitterness, unforgiveness, blame, revenge. <laughs> okay? Um, when yeah. someone else has inflicted harm on us, we um, often will focus on what they did wrong. I mean, let me, let, me get back, let me go back to this. If I have inflicted pain on someone else, intentionally or unintentionally, when I find out that I unintentionally caused someone harm, my first focus is going to be to protect myself and also think about what they did wrong for, me, for them to deserve what I did to them, right? <laughs> we want to justify ourselves. And we start building the wall up, right? We yeah. start adding, adding blocks to our side. And then we're going to try to find allies on my side who will, who will say, yeah. you see what he really did wrong? See, he, he deserved it when I, got, when I did punishment <laughs> or when I 
gave revenge on him, right? <laughs> or when I said that thing to him, or when I broke a relationship with him. Um, so we live in these cycles, and we just don't know how. Hmm. We just don't yeah. know how to break them. Yeah. So those are those are the realities. So right. help us help us uh, create a better way forward. Because you shared a tool that that is used right. that just is mostly it, it's mostly about what we emphasize really, and how how we can build the right foundations for right. specifically now. Where once again we're going back to just disagreements, right? Mm. Not, not always someone does a clear wrong thing to someone else. Just like, you just don't get along. Right. How do we walk forward in that? All right. Well, we have it. some graphics. Ah, Here we go, everyone. We're going to center on Jesus, okay? And we understand that Jesus never did either an authoritarian way or a passive way. He was neither one of those things, right? Hmm. So if we're going to center on Jesus, we have to think about how did he resolve conflict? Yeah. And um, so most of us, I think many of us, have not been taught how to have a heart-to-heart conversation with someone else. Hmm. That has, um, when that person has uh, done harm or offended us, and how to then turn that back to restoration um, toward our relationship. Okay, so you just gave me a a process here. So what we're going to talk about, whoops, there, that's how we're going to start. Okay, so let's think about this in um, like a triangle. A pyramid form or a triangle form? Yeah. Yeah. So the foundation here. The foundation of our relationships. And you can look up here, we got the same thing. And in in our one-on-one relationships and in church relationships as a church body should be the relationship of care and support. Okay, so first we are going to have a relationship that is that is protective of each other's dignity is respectful, who cares um, about the other person's point of view, who um, understands that other points of view can exist. So this is all cultural. This is oh. a culture where this is established before the disagreements happen. Right. That we make the choice that with one another, because Jesus told us to have relationships that are founded on love and known by love, mm-hmm. that we will begin with care and respect and have that as like a, a core value. Right. Yeah. And, and so, then... Um, then when those dis- disagreements or offenses actually happen, then we have our heart-to-heart conversation, okay? That should also be cultural. should be in a place where that heart-to-heart conversation can just happen. Because it's always happening about things that aren't just disagreements. Right. We, we, we value learning to talk about real stuff. Real right? stuff. Yeah. So we, hmm. we have a culture of, of our relationship gets to the point where we care about each other and know, know each other well enough that we can have these heart-to-heart conversations. Get, and then, finally, we have a conflict, okay? <clears throat> and if we have a conflict, it should hopefully be resting on the fact that we can have heart-to-heart conversations with each other and we re- love and respect and care for each other. So, so do you understand that, that what this means is if we're talking about foundation and about amount of time and energy spent, then really we spend the most amount of time cultivating relationships of care, learning how to relate to one another in an honest, deep way, so that when the time comes to address something, that's actually the smallest piece of all of this because we have such a large foundation. But what do we end up doing, Lori? Well, obviously, what usually happens (laughs) is we center instead on the conflict. Yeah. Right? Um, We... um, we, we take, we, and then we just don't have the rest of it. 
Well, yeah, everything starts with the, the most important everything thing. Everything starts with the conflict. And what right? do we notice about this pyramid is that if the point is your foundation, we just talked about how it's very difficult, right? And so, <laughs> so what ends up happening is this thing gets very, very weak. Mm-hmm. And it's going to topple over if our foundations aren't right, right? right? And so, so what ends up happening is we just lose it completely. And then, ah, boom. And then our people have to go away. Right. So once we establish the right foundations, then we are no longer um, going to be so quick-tempered, so quick to want the fight, mm-hmm. right? Because if we don't have the foundation of relationship, then all we see is a two-dimensional person. Uh, I love, I, I sh- I've shown this video before, I love this idea of, um, oh, what's his name? Who does the Late Show right now, Jimmy uh, Fallon? Years ago, a guy got traded to the Mariners from the Yankees. Who was it? Who's a baseball guy in here? Who was the big trade? Um, He's a a Dominican guy, I think. Um, Who? Yes, Cano. Thank you. So what they did is he took took a, uh, um, a, a big picture of Robinson Cano into Central Park. Have you seen, some of you have seen this, and, and it's a big picture, and he said, you know, this guy did you wrong. Here's just a chance to just boo this guy, right? And he give, they give him the microphone, and these people are coming up, and they're just yelling at this, at this big, giant, life-size picture, you suck, you're, you're horrible, man, just get out of here, you're, you're worth nothing. And little did they know that the guy is standing behind the picture, and so Robinson Cano then steps out, and everybody goes, Hey, oh my gosh, it's nice to meet you. I mean, I've, I've been a pretty big fan, right? Because when we paint someone as two-dimensional, it is so much easier to treat them as less than human. And when we encounter a three-dimensional person, even there where they didn't have the foundation of a relationship, when they encounter a three-dimensional person, all of a sudden, things change. So if we are developing relationships with one another as three-dimensional people, I would say four-dimensional people because we, we move beyond the three-dimensional form into the realm of spirit and see that each one of you and your views and your attitudes and your actions are all a, a, a conglomeration of a million factors, right? Your family of origin, your chemical makeup, your faith journey, all of these things, where you've been, what, what harm has been done to you, and what joys have been done. And those are going to form your things. Then all of a sudden, we can become curious about one another. Mm-hmm. We, can, we can move into a different, a different realm, and we can stop with, with just the two-dimensional. Um, Soren Kierkegaard's uh, famous quote, when you label me, you negate me, mm-hmm. is so interesting. Like, like, we are called to not be label makers for others. And, it, and in our world right now, it is so easy to typecast somebody. And to say, I know what you are. I'm going to use my one descriptor. Yeah, but think about this. Restorative practices gives us the opportunity to live into God's story Mm -hmm. of the renewal of all things. Hmm. Think about what it would look like if we did actually renew our relationships with each other, Hmm. with our families, with our coworkers. Um, if, if, all, if everybody has to be on the same page, right? It's, it's not like I can have this attitude and then somebody else can be like this, you know, yeah. have a different attitude and then I can just fix it by my attitude. That's just, that doesn't work. But yeah. on relationships based on care and respect, um, hmm. we, can, we can live into the story. Yeah. 
And it doesn't mean, I think, I think it's important that it doesn't require, you, you said that, um, what was the phrase you just used? That you didn't use buy-in. What was the phrase you just used about, like, both people? Like, that, yeah, it has to be, both yeah, people have it has to be, to be both people. But it doesn't have to end with both people ending in agreement. Right. You can model the kingdom, and this is what we've been told is impossible. And friends, I'm telling you, this, these next few months, like, things get really horrible when politics get involved. And now we have identity politics that, that have taken on such a role in someone's, in, in someone's understanding of themselves right. um, that, that if you feel like... <clears throat> you can read, uh, oh, Pastor in Queens. Thanks, Rich Velotis. Thanks, Sean. Um, you can, you can read his work on this, but his work is fascinating on saying what we've, what we've gotten to now in terms of the world of, of politics and stuff is that I, I don't just align with someone's like political, I don't know, agenda. I align with an entire value system, and my value system comes from my spirituality, and my spirituality becomes, is, is, comes out of my understanding of God. And so therefore, if you question any of my political choices, you are actually questioning my belief in God and in what God is like. And we get to this point where, where things have broken down so much. And I get people look at the world in, ver- in vastly different ways. But if we don't model at least a better way to be able to respect and agree, then we're not going to make any progress. And we're certainly not going to be a radical witness of being known by our love for one another, who, by the way, you're going to get all sorts of different political views and practices. And it's okay to work for what you believe in. But, but to deny anybody else's authentic faith just by a label, they're Catholic, they're a Democrat, they're a Republican, they're, you know, like, whew, we're just, we're, we're outside of the realm of, of the teaching of Jesus there. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, you know, did, did you have anything else you want to share? I wanted to give a final encouragement. Okay, I want to just give, I mean, we're talking, we talked about this on a super high level, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me um, an example. I want to talk was... about an example. I have many examples. So I, it was very hard for me to just think of just one example. Um, but I've been a classroom teacher, and I used restorative practices in my classroom teaching, where what I did was I centered having a relationship of care and with my students. That was my main foundation, what I spent most of my time doing. And then we could do the heart-to-heart conversations and deal with conflicts. Hmm. So we always dealt with that. I was a manager of a homeless shelter that where families um, experiencing homelessness would come and stay. And I used restorative practices there to help families get along with each other. And, of course, in my own, fa- in my own home, in my own family, we use restorative practices, too. It's just our way of life. Hmm. But let me tell you, husbands and wives... We can have these this disagreements from time to time. And I'm going to just tell a real quick one about my, myself and my husband. So my husband and I go to uh, Home Depot together. And uh, we have this project that we want to do and a problem to solve in our house. And so <clears throat> we decide to go to Home Depot together. And so we're walking down the aisle. And he's looking at things. And I'm looking at things. And, he, and I said to him, oh, what about this? What about this? What about this? Oh, look at this one. And the more that I say that, the more obviously he is getting irritated with me, okay? Like, I could just 
He's not saying anything to me, but I can just see it in his countenance that he's getting irritated and irritated and more irritated, and pretty soon he doesn't even want to talk to me at all. Here I am only just trying to help, right? Like, I'm just trying to help. I'm not trying to cause a problem. And so we, we buy our thing at whatever we decide to buy at Home Depot, and we, and we go out to the car. And he, um, he's now at the point where he's not even really talking to me. And so, restorative practices. First question is, what happened? That's the first question of restorative practices. What happened? Okay, I could say I already know what happened because <laughs> I was there, right? I know I was just trying to help and you got irritated with me. That's what happened. No, <clears throat> because actually I'm not inside his head yeah. and I'm not inside his body knowing his feelings. And so, I had to ask. What happened there? And then, you know, not to make it too long, but he explained to me his thought process and how his thought process was working. And every time I said, what about this? What about this? I was interrupting him and his pro thought process. And he couldn't finish his thought. And he, though, didn't want to get mad at me. You know, he didn't want me to know that he was irritated, right? He was trying to hide that, but more he tried to hide it, the more I could tell. He's withdrawing right. more. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So this is just a common thing that, that, that we go through. So I said to him then, after he explained all this, I said, okay, what can we do next time we come to Home Depot hmm. that will make it a better, a better situation for both of us? And first he said, do you have to come? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, it's a given that I have to come. <laughs> And um, so he said, okay, and so we made a plan. Hmm. So we made a plan that next time um, he wants to solve a problem in the aisle of the place as we're going, and I'm bothering him, he will say to me, hey, I need a minute. And then I will say to him, okay, I'll go look at the paints. And then I will go and leave, or look at, hmm. and I will go and leave and leave him to his thing. And then he'll come find me when he's ready. Problem solved, right? From yeah. now on, we could have gone years and years and years and years into every time we go to the store and I say something to you, you yeah. get irritated. Yeah. Because and, and it's, it's been undealt with. Right. And, so and it's, we could yeah. have just apologized to each other when we got out to the car. Oh, I'm sorry I got irritated with you. I know you were just trying to help. That could have been the end of that conversation. And then that irritation would have kept going. Oh, instead, yeah. we solved it. Yeah. We solved it with a two-minute conversation yeah. that now when we go to the store, he can just say, I need a minute. Hmm. That's, that's restorative practice. That's good. Yeah, and uh, thanks for that example because I think sometimes we need to break it down to it's not always this huge thing. There's little ways that we can make sure that we continue to restore and, and value the relationships. Um, I'll give an internal example that's, that's briefer, that's real, real simple in case some of you can relate to this. Uh, personally, my, my personality as a, a real people pleaser uh, what makes me want to make everybody happy all the time. And when someone has a, criti a critique or a disagreement with me, it is very, very difficult for me. I don't get combative. I tend not to get combative. I tend to withdraw and feel horrible about myself because I wasn't perfect. Like, this is like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not enough for them and I'm not for them, whatever. Um, delightful. I don't know if any of you else are Enneagram 2s, but welcome to the world. Uh, but any, anyways, so, so with, with that piece, what I have learned is if someone 
uh, is once, once or needs to criticize or address something, if I know that there's a foundation of love and care and respect, it actually isn't an issue. It's no problem. Because for me, my ability to keep everybody happy is linked to my, my value as a human. It's not healthy. It's just what it is. Um, but but so, so for me, like with our vision team, like I know that our team, of which Lori and, and several others are a part of, are like there is a foundation of love and care that we have worked to establish so much so anything can be said and it doesn't send me spiraling. <laughs> like, oh no, I'm not good enough because I know I'm loved and that's what, I really, that's what I really need. And I think to some level, people with personalities like me are hypersensitive to that, but on some level it's universal. When people know that they're loved and cared about, then the way those disagreements land are going to be different. Jesus told us this. Right. So... Yes. I'm going to actually teach a life seminar oh, yes. right. um, coming up at the end of this month, I guess. I don't know. It hasn't been Yeah, started. we haven't set the date yet, but, but we'll, anyway, let, we'll let you know soon. Where I will help with practical, everyday, um, restorative practices type things yeah. that you can apply to your actual life. Yeah. Cool. So we're not going to talk about John 4, but it's a wonderful example where uh, the woman at the well, when, John's, when Jesus is interacting with her, she keeps pushing to uh, the, the issue, and he keeps moving it back to the foundational relationships of care, and uh, so you can take a look at that. It's a, it's a cool little study, and there's other, other things too. Jesus, you, one of your passionate stories is John 8 with the adulterous woman and, and how Jesus moves toward restorative practices there. So anyways, uh, just, just a, a, a couple of, of final encouragements that the witness of a Jesus-centered church, um, it can look like this is what can be so radical. It can look like disagreement without degrading or demonizing another per- person. That's radically different. It's possible to disagree and say, we see things differently on this one. That's okay. You're not like a horrible person because we see things differently. We might have a different understanding of how this should work or that value system. Um, There can be unity without requiring uniformity. You know, Jesus, I mean, the whole, uh, you should all agree together. I don't really know what Paul was getting at or if he was in touch with reality. (laughs) Jesus' prayer was, was for us to be unified, but... I think sometimes we think unity means uh, everyone's vanilla, you know? Um, Richard Twiss, who is this brilliant theologian, he died a couple years ago from the Lakota tribe, um, disciple of Jesus. He said that when he was converted to Christianity, what he learned was when you become a Christian, all things, you, you, you shed the old self and all things are made white. And, and he realized and learned that in order to be accepted within the Christian faith, none of his background as an indigenous person was able to be welcomed. And so his life became helping incorporate a Jesus life into the tribal culture that he was a part of. And it's brilliant, beautiful. Richard Twist, read him. Um, okay, and then love and respect are always at the foundational, as the foundational trait of, of all of this. So these are just the encouragements. It's not rocket science, right, folks? It's just that we get, we get blown off course really easily, you know? It's not easy. It's not easy. But it's, but it's clear what we can do. It's not easy, um, but the gospel is simple and hard, not easy and complicated. Uh, and so, so, yeah, that's, that's our encouragement to, to you. There's so much more that we could talk about, but we won't. Um, uh, we, we won't, but uh, there's so much good stuff in terms of thinking about how the body of Christ works. We're